Amen. Good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ Community Church. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 8 through 13 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with. God invites us to believe the gospel with joy and peace so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would abound in hope. Let me read that again. God invites us to believe the gospel with joy and peace so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would abound in hope. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is Romans 15, 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to conform the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to you to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Hold him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we step into this text, this really is, for all intents and purposes, uh, the, the conclusion of Romans proper. Right? So everything that's going to come after is going to be personal postscript, which is still important, so don't skip those sermons or think that that's not important, but that's going to be more personal to Paul. Here, essentially, he's bringing together everything he has written uh, from, from essentially Romans 1, 16 and 17 to here. In fact, if you remember what Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is it that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel? Well, because the gospel has brought him joy and peace, and it has caused him to abound in hope. Because he sees the evidence of the fulfillment in the gospel in this Roman church. Remember, remember that the point of the entire project that God has going on in this world, the, the mission of God, the Missio Dei for you fancy folks, it is to be restored to his people. Well, which people? People from every tongue, tribe, and nation, right? And so this is one of the reasons why he refers to the Gentiles coming in as a mystery that's being revealed now or being revealed in and through the Roman church. So he sees the Roman church as this beautiful fulfillment of God's promises in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that in Galatians, he refers to the Abrahamic covenant as the gospel. So the point of the story is for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to be united. Why is that important to us? Well, because we're so easily divided. We're, it's, it's, we're so quick to decide who are our enemies and what they deserve. We're so quick to, to try to think much of ourselves and the things that we've been entrusted. We're, we're so quick to not believe. We're so quick to not believe with joy and hope and peace. And so what Paul's trying to do here is make sure that they hear the sum total of what he has been trying to impart to them is this. Now, as we step into the text, we're going to see him doing what he talked about last week, that the God of, of endurance and encouragement gives us his word for both of those things so that we might hope, 
right? Is it easy, is it easy for people of differing cultures and ideals and food tastes and clothing to come together for one purpose? Is that an easy thing? No, it isn't. So what are you going to need? You're going to need to endure because will there be some days when it looks like to have us believe is most true about our current social, political, cultural climate? That's hopeless unless, unless a dictator with a sword in his fist or her fist rises and forces unity. Uh, uh, that's not what we want, Right? Christ didn't come that way. It's very interesting, the word that Paul chooses, that Christ comes as a servant. He's a servant king. He is to be worshipped. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, not because he lops off the heads of every tenth person, just to make sure you know he's serious. And you may say, but yes, he does have a sword. Yes, and that sword, as it turns out, is the word of God. It will move hearts and minds as it ought. Right? Which is why he's the God of endurance and encouragement. And so we want to make sure that we hear what Paul is telling us as he's summing these things up, the gravity of this. So before we get into the text, let me ask you a question because I think this is important. And I think you really need to think about it. Not right now, sometime later. Which of your enemies, which is important, which of your enemies do you think have no place in God's family? See, that's a very important question. And, and don't, don't get all over-spiritual, hyper-spiritualized and be like, well, I don't have any enemies. Every man is my brother, every woman my sister in the image of God. That is true. And if you believe that, amen, uh, may your tribe increase. But for too many, that is not true. You know how I know it's not true? Because I got behind the slowest person in the history of the world this morning. And this guy must be, among my tribe, a two-footed driver. If you don't know this about me, it's very important because it drives my wife absolutely bananas. Now, I think I'm a really good two-footed driver. And this guy was not a very good two-footed driver because he was riding his brakes and going slow. I go quickly and touch my brakes only periodically. And so, here I am, supposed to be preparing for church, right? And it was, I was like, Lord, you can't do me like this. And so I get around this guy, right? And then I get behind a black Tesla. The color's not necessarily important, it's just what it was. It was matte black on top of everything else, okay? And this guy is somehow managing to drive slower than that guy, but he's not a two-footed driver because I never saw his brake lights. Somehow he managed to keep it at a real nice, cozy 18 miles an hour on due west. I was like, Lord, seriously, like, I can't, I can't live like, I can't work like this. Count me too weak, right? Now, I'm being somewhat facetious, but am I? Do you know what was in my heart toward, toward these folks? But it rose without much provocation. Now, add, add to that any of the other topics and things that we find important or things that we feel like are of greater gravity and how much more violent will we become? I'm reading a book right now that I would love to be able to recommend to you, but I'm not sure I can just because I don't want you to be discouraged. But it's by Sinclair Lewis, and it's called It Can't Happen Here. It was written in 1935, which is interesting in and of itself. It's one of the more terrifying books I've ever read. 
because I feel like I might be reading the newspaper for today. And in this book, basically the situation in the country, if you remember in the 30s, coming out of a depression, coming out of a sexual revolution, uh, which The Great Gatsby's kind of about, and flappers and all these kind of things. Uh, a lot's kind of going on in the country. We've just come out of the Great War and are now about to enter into yet another world war, which we're kind of trying to stay out of, if we, if we could, but we couldn't, as it turned out. And it's interesting, the description uh, of the country in this book. The youth were shiftless and didn't really care about the civic stuff that, that the, the, these folks thought they ought to care about. And they were into music and dancing and entertainment and technology. Huh. And they were distracted. And, 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 and the thought was, the only way to toughen up the youth is we need us a good war. Because that's how you make men and women, right? Kill some folks, put them at, 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 at hazard, let them almost die or let a bunch of them die, and it'll straighten them up, won't it? And it talked about how there, there, there was no real men in the country anymore. This is 35 now. Now, you may say it's a fiction book, but Sinclair Lewis was saying something. He was a provocateur of sorts. And so, so someone rose to power named Buzz Windrip. And Buzz Windrip uh, sounded like a Christian who really cared about things, but realize you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And it turns out you got to break, apparently, a whole bunch of eggs, some chickens, some coops, and lots of other things. He's, he becomes, essentially, a, a, and I know this term gets thrown around, but it's what the book says, he's a fascist. And so he, he starts just murdering people. And gets people in line and gets the youth. Like, one of the things that's celebrated is, is that the, the youth finally rose up. And, and, and threw out all of the, the people in college that they didn't agree with. Uh, and murdered them. And like they said, well, you know, what, what revolution ultimately doesn't include a fair amount of bloodshed? Well, see, this is what's dangerous, is, is we long for, interestingly, not freedom, as it turns out. We long for the safe confines of a law that we're willing to. And so this is what the guy, think about what Paul's do. It never could. It was never intended to save you. In fact, what the law was intended to do is help you to relate to God, to love the Lord your God, and to love your neighbor as you yourself know you have been loved. And over and over again, the length of the Old Testament is so that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that by all human effort, we cannot be saved. We can't. Sooner or later, the revolution eats itself. It's just done it too many times historically. It's not because you haven't tried it. And so he's telling us the law can't save you and you are granted this freedom in Christ that is all things are clean. Remember him saying this, that all things are clean, right? You can eat shrimp, you can eat bacon, you can eat food sacrificed to idols. Why? Because idols don't exist. I mean, they're not gods. They're just little pieces of wood and metal. However, and this is the most frightening thing he says, however, you can't always use that freedom. In fact, you must be cognizant of the people around you in great hospitality so as not to make them to think less of their, their being loved by God. If they think it's unclean, 
It is, in fact, unclean and will do them damage. And you should care more about that than you care about the freedom that you've been granted. Why can he say this? Well, the freedom that we've been granted in this world is fleeting, is it not? How long do you get to enjoy any of the freedoms that you have? In fact, if you think about life, it wasn't until I was 40, and this is fairly common, that I began to actually be comfortable in my own skin in some measure and to be able to think through, all right, how do I want to live out my life for the sake of other people? And that process is still going on. All the while, I am aging. And so, as I have said, that old right hip of mine has been acting a straight fool. I can't get out of the chair as fast as I used to. And if I drop something on the floor, no longer do I bend down to pick it up, I decide if I even still need it anymore. <laughs> and so, and so while, while, hey, I'm growing in freedom and wisdom, but I can't outrun you no more. Right, And even as I get further and further into that and more and more appreciate wisdom and freedom, there is the degradation that is occurring, the, the, the ephemeral nature of my very being. And so, here's the good news, though. This was never the point. The point is the new heavens and new earth in which we will be able to take great joy in the, in the fullness of our freedoms. We will no longer be divided about anything. We will sing by people in all of history. No longer will we complain and divide and hate and, and not think of the other. We will at long last be in the presence of the Lord our God, unfettered, fully seen, so that we at last can experience true joy and peace. But it would probably be wise for us to practice a little bit before we get there, which is what Paul's trying to help us do. Right? And so... As he comes in, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant. And that, again, that's very important that he uses that language because that's the language of condescension. Christ doesn't come in to the world and say, All right, you fools have been making a mess of the place, and frankly, I've been sitting up there watching it, and I'm sick of it. And, and I'm going to wreck shot. Now, do remember, where does judgment begin, for those of you who are all about judgment? in the house of the Lord. And it will be strong. It will also occur in the world, don't get me wrong, and it will be strong there too. But we need to recognize that Jesus didn't show up. Yes, he flipped over tables. Yes, he, he really had harsh words for the Pharisees. But there's a grace in that because was it, was it a total condemnation and judgment? No, he was granting them the opportunity to repent. Why do we know this? Who wrote this letter? Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul himself, or Saul as he once was. And so he's saying, look, Christ comes in condescension as a servant sent by God who loves us, which should call to mind Romans chapter 3 for us, where he makes it very clear that all have sinned. This is a universal truth. There's none of us less uh, obnoxious to the Lord our God in our disobedience than another. It is equal all across the board. My grandchild Adeline, who I would argue at this point, objectively, no less, is the sweetest, cutest kid in the, in the world. Justice is a very close second. And so, so, it is hard for me to think of her being a little sinner until 
She makes it really easy. And so we need to understand that cuteness, niceness, uh, like uh, the obedience that we think we are offering to the Lord, none of that means anything to him outside of our heart and our love. And so, and so he comes as a servant, not as a king with a sword in his fist to destroy things. In fact, this is why they are so decentered when he shows up and he's not declaring that he's going to overthrow Rome. Like, then what are you doing here? And even the Pharisees were like, man, this guy's dangerous. He's dangerous because he doesn't have a sword in his fist. He's dangerous because he's talking about getting himself killed. Well, let's expedite that process and help him out. And so he comes to serve. He even says this in John 13, if you remember, when he washes Peter's feet. He washes the disciples' feet. And he says, look, as I have done, so must you do. I came to serve. So here, Paul is reminding us of, of why Christ came. He came as a servant. But what's interesting is he comes as a servant to the circumcised. Wait a minute, I thought they had the birthright. I thought they had the covenant. I thought they had everything they needed outside of Christ. So why did he come to the circumcised if they're so strong? Well, don't forget Romans 2 and 3, right? Where he makes it very clear that, yes, you had all these things, but what benefit is it to you to be a Jew if you don't know what you really are, which is in need of a Savior? And so he says that he comes to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. To show his goodness, if you will. To say, show his faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now the patriarchs would be uh, uh, Moses and Abraham and, and Jacob and so on, right? The, the, the big names of the Old Testament for whom promises were given that they would be someday God's chosen people, that they are uh, the, the, the priesthood who are supposed to testify to the nations of God's faithfulness, promises, goodness, mercy, loving kindness, and forgiveness. But he doesn't stop there, as Paul likes to do. He, he keeps the sentence going. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he's saying this was intended all along to serve a particular redemptive purpose. God chose Israel to bring in the Gentiles, not to let them know that they were unworthy and out. And as he says in Romans, don't forget Romans 9 through 11, that the Gentiles would then, as they come in, make the unbelieving Jews, what? Jealous. So that they would do what? Come in. And then as they came in, what would happen to more Gentiles who didn't know? They would experience the mercy of God. This is the great mystery. That the Lord longs for his family to be insanely diverse in many ways. And this has been the point of the Roman church. He's saying, you all are the best example we got going in the kingdom at that time. Remember who they were, the Jews who were redeemed at Pentecost, who then came back to Rome, evangelized the Gentiles, out-evangelized themselves, grew in great number of the Gentiles, get kicked out because of some census. The Gentiles take over and the division begins because when the Jews return, they want to flex and say, hey, thanks for keeping the home fires burning. And the Gentiles said back to them, well, that's cute, but you got kicked out. We're in charge now. 
And since we're the new kid on the block, we're obviously more beloved of God than you. And so they have this argument. And you may be saying, but we don't argue like that. Yes, we do. How often do, do we argue that we have it more right than other people with a complete lack of humility? How often do we, like the disciples, when there were people casting out demons, not in the way they were supposed to, they, they weren't doing it right, and they come to Jesus and we're like, hey, we got to take care of this stuff. they got to stop. And what does he say? He says, if they're not against us, and they're proclaiming my name, then what are they? For us. Where did the law tighten up after Jesus? What new law have we written that says this is the way we are to conduct ourselves toward each other, that we should spend the majority of our time making sure that people know we have it the most right and they have it the most wrong? That's within the camp, not even outside the camp. And we, and we operate with a complete lack of humility and grace. Now, did I just say that we cannot ever critique what another Christian does? No. But what I am saying is the heart at, by which you do that ought be to get them to come which direction? Toward Christ himself, not you. They should grow in Christ. This is Paul's entire argument about hospitality, that our hospitality ought to always result in the building up edification of whoever is in our midst toward Jesus, not toward us. Now, will they move toward us if we're in Christ? Yeah, that's the double benefit. But they are to be built up in Jesus, which is not an easy thing, which means you've got to know Jesus yourself. You've got to be versed enough in Scripture to know what is true and what is fraudulent, what is a closed-hand issue and what ultimately is an open-hand issue. I would argue the vast majority of our divisionary things are about open-hand issues. Now, if we're arguing about, did Christ really resurrect? That's a closed-hand issue. If we're arguing about the virgin birth, closed-hand issue. If we're arguing about God's design for sexuality and, and gender and those things, closed-hand issue. But I can deal with it, right? I can deal with all of these things with still humility and grace. A closed-hand issue don't, doesn't mean you get to be a jerk, it doesn't mean that you get to not long for that person to come out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light, just as you did at one time. Don't forget where you came from. And that should fuel why they do what they do. Because what's interesting about this is who are the strong and who are the weak in this scenario? It depends. When are we talking about one of you made the brilliant observation last week that all of us, at times, would be numbered among the strong, possibly, and all of us, at other times, would be numbered among the weak, depending on who we're engaging with and why and on what issue, which is really what Paul was trying to get them to do. Remember, he's not trying to divide them into strong and weak. He's trying to get them to see you are both. And you need each other, and you need each other based on what Christ has done for you. The gospel of which you ought not be ashamed. And so then he, he goes into a, a litany of scriptures 
basically doing what he talked about last week, right? When he, when he said that the scriptures were written for our endurance and encouragement by the God of all endurance and encouragement for hope, right? This is, this is and so hope is a very technical term, biblically. It's not like, man, I hope I have a good day. Or I hope they still have chicken wings at lunch. Or whatever it is. No, this is, this is hope in the completion of all that God said he would do. This is hope in the fulfillment that every tongue, tribe, and nation, Revelation 7, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, that we would experience the new heavens, new earth together, and that way more people would be there than we've tried to keep out. So it's hope in something very specific. So he, he strings these together, and they come. What's so interesting to me is he pulls them from all over the Old Testament. Why do you think he would do that? To show you that he's not locating in just one portion of the Old Testament, right? You might could accuse him, yeah, but if, if it's just only that one spot, is it really the whole thing? So he pulls from 2 Samuel 22.50 for this first one. Now, what's really interesting about that you got to think about when 2 Samuel's written, what's going on, right? This is the nation of Israel being formed, uh, finally, under a king. The king that was promised, not just the Davidic covenant, but you got to remember Genesis 49. The scepter was never to depart from Judah. Kings were always part of how he was going to lead them in the story. But they wanted a particular king. You remember what kind? Remember what Saul was for them? What was he? just like all the other nations. He was beautiful, tall, well-spoken. He would fight in a heartbeat. He would defend in a heartbeat. He would compromise if it was what was best for him. Right? That's what they wanted. Not some ruddy little dude who ain't much to look at and plinks on a harp all day. What kind of sissy is that? And so, so they didn't want that. But already the purpose of the formation of Israel and its having of a king, as it says here, is that, uh, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That they would go forward into the nations to show them that their kings ought not be what they wanted either. And then he goes on to, to quote from Deuteronomy 32.43. Now, that's interesting. He pulled from the Torah, especially Deuteronomy. He says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's an invitation. That's a divine invitation of hospitality to worship. And then he goes on to Psalm 117.1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. This is the point of the redemptive story. This is how we ought live. And if that weren't enough, he turns to the great prophet Isaiah and quotes from Isaiah 11, which is one of the great Christological passages that points forward to the coming Christ. He says, the root of Jesse will come. Well, what's interesting, the root of Jesse is what? Well, that's the Davidic covenant. That's the kingly lineage. That's not, a, that's not servant lineage. That's kingly lineage. But this is a servant king who's coming, not a tyrant. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. Right? The God of hope. The God who will keep his promises even in the darkest of days, under the darkest of regimes, under the darkest of periods of history. 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy. Joy in what? Right? Is this just an emotion? Is it, is it just kind of happy clappy? Are we talking about joy in something? Well, we're talking about joy in Christ. Joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy that we are who God says we are as his people. Joy that we are actually and truly saved. No longer to walk in shame and guilt and sin. Free to love. Free to give up. Free to give away. Free to bless. Why? Because we have eternity. We have access to all the heavenly blessings. Woe be unto us for us to work in a miserly economy in this regard. Woe be unto us to keep from others what is so great a treasure. Now, let me pause for those of you who think, man, he just went like uber-baptistic. Are we going to pass out tracts or something? No, unless that's your gift. It's not mine. I freak people out with that stuff. So I don't do it. But in the way that the Lord has gifted you, there are tons of ways for us to share. Again, I've, I've mentioned Susan does such a beautiful job just in hospitality that people just want, want to go to heaven if that's how you're going to eat. That deep John Wayne voice at the rescue mission who hated me with a passion more than any of you. He hated my preaching more than any of you could possibly approach. Right? Like he, he's got the crown. And yet, Glenn Taylor ate some of Susan's Texas chili and fry bread. And when he got in the car, he said this. He said, Cameron, that's as close to a Christian as I've ever been. <laughs> he said, that's how people eat in heaven. That's, yeah, that's where I want to go. Now, he didn't become a Christian then, but it opened the doorways for us to have a conversation that Glenn, before he died, did make a profession of faith. And I sure hope he's going to run up. When I get to heaven, because I'm pretty sure I'm beating Susan to that side, and he's, I hope he runs up and says, look, I ain't wishing she would hurry up and get up here, but how long do you think it's going to be? And so, and that, that's not, none of that was biblical doctrinal. That was all sacred imagination. But Glenn Taylor being a Christian is not. That's real. And it was, it was all of the things that were offered to him. It wasn't just Susan. It was also me having hard conversations with Glenn and still loving him. Helping Glenn find a place to live when he had burned every riven bridge in Macon, Georgia, which is hard to do. He did it. And so we want to be a people who are about redemption. And we want to be a people who first take joy in our own because what is it? what are we offering people? If we are joyless, if, if our Christianity is a joyless slog, if it's something we, ha we have to endure, what is it we're offering anybody? Fire insurance? What? Right? No. We need to offer them. We need to be some of the most festive people this world has ever seen. I had lunch with Tony Melton on uh, last week, and he's the Anglican rector, I, I don't know, one of those words, to be true to the Anglicans. Now, one thing that their church does really well that I have paid attention to is they do festivity really, really well. They have dances, which would make me crawl out of my skin. Maybe not you, and I don't have to show up. I can fake a spleen attack. Uh, but they do festivity, and I told him this. I said, man, y'all do festivity really well. We in the Reformed tradition are like, I'm having fun, just look at my face. In fact, uh, in, in seminary, 
D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book <laughs> called Joy Unspeakable. Now, remember the title. This is very important. The original cover, and I want to find, I don't care if it cost me $1,000, I want to buy a copy so that I'll never forget this. On the cover was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones himself, Joy Unspeakable written above him, and him like this. <laughs> Somebody went, sales aren't good on this thing. And they found, except in his words. Right? But th that can't be us. I'm not talking about fake joy. I'm, not ta I'm talking about genuine joy that we know we are redeemed, beloved, and, he, and, and we have access to all the spiritual blessings. Now, if that's not you this morning, if you're struggling with joy, that's actually good news because you have something by which you can, it's a bellwether. Lord, why do I not have joy? What is it about the gospel that I am either ashamed of or that I don't believe? Now, if you're going through sorrow and grief, that is a different subject matter. That you, you need to grieve well, you need to sorrow well. There's things that are worthy of sorrow in this world. It's not, this, this kind of joy, again, it's not just smiling, it's persevering, it's enduring joy. And it also says, and peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Remember Romans 5 where he said, you stand at peace before God. We have access to all the heavenly blessings. We are able to come before God without a mediator because Christ has mediated and continues actually to, to, to speak on our behalf before the very throne of God and to command the angels to do things. What? Yeah, it's in the Bible. That's weird to me too. And the Holy Spirit, who indwells you, doesn't have to find you, is in you. And so we are at peace with God. That sets us free to engage in things and risk things to love other people well. And so it, it, it strikes me that we, we need to be a people who are, as the Bible calls us to be, more other-oriented because we have been loved and set free to. And so not only do those things does he pray for them to have in believing and believing the gospel, and it's so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Providentially, last night, because uh, today's Father's Day, I, I have not necessarily acknowledged this Hallmark holiday, but it exists and it has an impact on us, does it not? And so, uh, last night, my neighbor, uh, she had some, she had two cucumbers and a squash for us that she told us, she's, I'm entrusting these to you. I worked hard to see these things grow. And if you let them perish without eating them, it's going to hurt me. <laughs> That's not the point of this story. That's just background. So she providentially calls us over and we go over and, and says, take a seat. And we, we had this wonderful conversation with them. And, and Arlene got up and she prayed for us. Now, it's Father's Day, and uh, many of you have wished me a happy Father's Day. Father's Day is, next to Christmas, the most complex holiday in all of the whatever calendar for me. Both in terms of my own, uh, just dealings with, my father killed himself before I was born. My stepdad spent 29 years in prison, and probably got many folks who've invested in me uh, on this, uh, that, that serve as father figures, but it's a patchwork. And not to mention, we're, we're at odds with one of our children. And, uh, and so it's, I needed what she had to say. I needed what she had to pray in order to not feel 
different about this day and not carry it with great sorrow and instead be able to recognize it is worthy of sorrow to be divided, to be cut off from one of your family members, either permanently in death or currently in life. That ain't easy. But to take hope in the fact that I know the God who can reconcile all of those things in his way and in his timing. I am not as one, I don't grieve as one without hope. I have hope because of the joy and the peace of the gospel. This is what Paul longs for for us in order to be able to continue to pray and to hope and to pursue reconciliation and redemption. This is gift to us. So this is where he brings Romans to its essential pinnacle and conclusion theologically before he gets into the personal stuff which starts next week. Listen to what John Calvin says about this passage. He says, Paul now shows that Christ has embraced us all. So that leaves no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, except that in the first place he was promised to the Jewish nation and was in a manner peculiarly destined for them before he was revealed to the Gentiles. But he shows that with respect to that which was the seed of all contentions, there was no difference between them. When he gathered into the Father's kingdom that they might be one flock in one sheepfold under one shepherd. It is hence right, he declares, that they should continue united together and not despise one another. For Christ despised neither of them. So first, I think it would be good for you on this Lord's Day Sabbath to take some time to consider, think back on, Who the Lord has redeemed that has brought you joy and peace in believing, that has caused you to abound in hope. Maybe it's someone that's like, I can't believe God did a work in their lives. I can't believe the good work that the Lord is doing to redeem, whether it's a messy circumstance or someone that went from darkness to light. This is a beautiful day on which to give thanks to the Lord for those things and to remember them because it helps you for the other folks who currently You're not reconciled with or there's not redemption in Christ. And then this next question is really for Monday through Saturday for you to think on. Who are you praying for? With How in the world could could we pray? Because we're not going to lasso these people into heaven with our efforts, right? We're not. Many of us try so hard and it just ends up weirder than it ought to be. Whereas if we were relaxed in who and whose we are, think about that's a lot more attractive to folks where we can have hospitality and freedom in that hospitality and we can bless and we don't always have to be right and we don't always have to prove ourselves because we've been proven in Christ. So Romans 15, 8 through 13 teaches us that God invites us to believe the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ that is redemptive, that is the the yes and the amen to the Abrahamic covenant, that we would believe that with joy because we have been included. We are sons and daughters of the God Most High. And we are at peace with that God and have access to him and all the heavenly blessings. We have a cup that runneth over. And that we would do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that that would then cause us, because of how we've been loved, 
to abound in hope as we love God and we love our neighbors. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you so love us that you invite us into the story that you redeemed us when we were only on the enemy list. Now, thank you that you have welcomed us not just into your presence, but into the redemptive story. You have equipped us, us. you have given us talents, you've given us abilities, you've given us the fruit of the Spirit, you've given us spheres of influence, you've given us opportunity, experience, etc., so that we could be a blessing to those around us. Would you help us to do that without anxiety or without fear, or without being so burdened that we feel like it's somehow on us. Help us walk in the true freedom in Christ, which is knowing that you are the one who broker and bring about redemption. We get to plant and water. You will grant the increase. So Lord, would you help us endure, endure well, endure hopefully. And would you also help us to, to, to be encouraged, to be built up, to have joy and peace in this hope? God, would you display the beauty of your countenance in and through us to a world that so desperately needs it, it, to a church that so desperately needs it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.